Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. Last week, we talked about what it means that God is the Almighty Creator. We've been going summer through the series, we've been doing a summer series through the Apostles' Creed, learning what is it exactly that we confess as Christians? What is it that we actually believe? And then how does what we believe transform who we are, but also what we do in the world around us? And so... Uh, if you missed a couple of those, you can go on our uh, Facebook page. There's links there. Or you can go to our podcast page on iTunes um, or, uh, or, or SoundCloud and look us up by the name if you want to catch up if you've missed some of those. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. But last week, we talked about God Almighty. We talked about God's almighty power revealed on the cross of Jesus as an act of self-giving love. We talked about how crea- God created everything, how creation is a good act of a good God. And then we talked about how trying to impose scientific systems on the accounts in Genesis isn't actually kind of the point of those texts, and it isn't always helpful. Uh, And we talked about how creation is an act of God's self-giving love. And then we also talked about how we are God's image bearers, how we continue that mission that God gave humanity at the beginning to be his image bearers um, in this now fallen yet still good world. And we talked about that too, how the world, even though it is fallen, it is still a good place. There's still goodness in it. God didn't announce creation bad when humanity fell into sin and death and subjected all creation to sin and death. It is still, it is still good. So today what we're going to do, we're going to actually confess the creed in a few minutes. Yay. But we're going to talk today the next line of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, how he is the Son of God and our Lord. So we see this all over the place. We heard it in the readings today. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Mark 9, 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what does it mean when we call Jesus the Son of God? We're going to talk about what it means to call Jesus the Son. Now, for some people, this is a stumbling block because it seems to indicate that if Jesus is God's Son, then that, that means there's a time when Jesus wasn't around. Some take this to the extremes, and I've heard so there's some weird theology out there, but some people say that, well, God kind of impregnated Mary, kind of like how the Greek gods would do it. Like, so we talked about this in other ways, but in Greek mythology, Zeus would see a woman that he liked, and he'd be like, I think she's really pretty. I'm going to go down there and, uh, and make her mine. And the, <laughs> the Christian God, the, the Judeo-Christian God doesn't work that way. It's not that kind of thing going on. So to call someone's son would seem to indicate kind of also a starting point of their life, right? Some see this then as applying to Jesus, but but this is wrong. When we call Jesus God's only begotten son, we're not speaking of an origin point in time. The word begotten is the Greek word monogenes, which means unique in kind. So when we say Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son, what we're saying is Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God. The unique Son of God. 
Now, what does the word son indicate? Well, many of us have kids. I have a little boy. His name is Isaac. When I call him my son, what am I indicating? I'm indicating relationship, and I'm indicating that he's, he's part of my family. It's a relational term. So we call Jesus God's son. We're speaking of a relationship, like we talked about last week, how the term father is a relational term. Jesus being the son highlights his uniqueness and his relationship with and to the God of the people of Israel. And in John 20, 31, John wrote, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Also, calling Jesus the Son of God means that as God's Son, Jesus shares in the nature of God. Jesus has not become the Son. He always is the Son. The Nicene Creed states it like this, Light of lights, very God of very God, of one essence or one substance with the Father. So as God the Son, Jesus shares in all of the divinity that the Father shares in, as does the Holy Spirit. As he says in John 10.30, the Father and I are what? One. I and the Father are one. And as the Son, Jesus becomes enfleshed by becoming fully human. We call this the incarnation. And so when we read the Gospels, Reading the Gospels is wonderful because we see the range of the humanity that Jesus experienced when he became human. So when you read the Gospels, Jesus is always happy. Nothing ever gets to him. He's never hungry. And it's happy, happy, joy, joy with Jesus all the time, right? No, 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 not at all. When we read the Gospels, we see Jesus getting angry. He goes to the temple, and they are buying and trading and selling things in the temple, and he gets so upset, he takes a bunch of ropes or cords, and he makes a whip, and he, start, and he starts whipping people and driving them out of the temple. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, got a little upset there. Why? Because they had turned his father's house into a marketplace, the place where God intended for all people to come to know him. He, we see him experience anger. We see him experience pain in the passion. We see him on the cross. What is he, one of the things he says is, I'm thirsty. We see him tired. When he goes to talk to the woman at the well, he's just been off a long journey. He's tired. His feet probably really hurt. So when we talk about Jesus becoming in flesh, or when we talk about the incarnation, he got angry, he got hurt, he got frustrated, he got thirsty, he got hungry. He is fully human, except that he was without sin. Therefore, death has no power over him, because the wages of sin is death. And in Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So why is it important that this is clearly stated here? Because if Jesus was created, if there was a time when he was not and he was brought into being, then it wouldn't be possible for his death and resurrection to free us from sin and death. Because as one of the great fathers and teachers of the church in Gregory, uh, the theologian, he said, that which has not been assumed has not been healed. So if there is a part of human nature that Jesus did not assume, then that part of us is not 
is not healed. And the author of Hebrews is saying he partook of flesh and blood just like us. So through his death, he could destroy the power of death and deliver all of us who were enslaved to death and to sin. And then through the Son, then, we can see the Father. John 14, 8 to 9, 8, 9, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I feel, <laughs> I feel like right here when Philip's like, Jesus, show us the Father. It's enough. I feel like Jesus did one of these. That's what I do. <laughs> when, I, when I do this and I make this pained look on my face and I squeeze my eyes like this, that's how you know I'm annoyed. And I probably shouldn't have told you that. If you see me doing it up here, oh no. Um, <laughs> no. Or I, I feel like maybe he did one of these. <sighs> like a little kid when you ask him to do something. Again, showing his humanity, right? The fr a little bit of annoyance or a little frustration here. He's like, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? How can you say, show me the Father? Is it enough? What do you think I've been doing this whole time for the past three years, Philip? When Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father, he's not speaking of looks. As if one can find out what Jesus looked like. Like, say they take the Shroud of Turin. Like, this is what maybe Jesus looked like. It's not we can say, okay, this is what Jesus looks like. Now this is what the Father looks like. No, it's not like that. He's not speaking of looks, but of something else. He's speaking of his life, his love on display through his actions. The gospel writers say that Jesus went around doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And so we see Jesus also in the gospels claim those great passages from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to deliver those who have been oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Through his life, from birth to death to resurrection to ascension and his ongoing work for us in heaven, Jesus' works and action continue to show God's self-giving love most magnificently and shown through his cross. So now let's look at what it means to call Jesus Christ and Lord. In Acts 2.36, St. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. So what does it mean first to call Jesus the Christ? So when we call Jesus Christ, and pretty much I think everyone knows this, we need to remember a few things. The first thing is that Christ is not a, a name, right? His name isn't Jesus, I don't know, Michael, right? Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is a title. Jesus the Christ. It's a title. It means anointed one. In Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. In the Greek translation of Hebrew, that word is Christos, where we get Christ. It means the anointed one. Well, so we could say Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the anointed one. They would be referring to the same thing. So then we say, okay, well, what, the, what then is the Messiah? So the Messiah was his end-time figure for the Hebrew people. The Messiah was a king who would come and one day usher in the reign and rule of Yahweh, or God. So they looked for this day where there were this, this leader would show up 
And this leader would be a military king, kind of like David, and he would either have a, 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 a human army or like a spiritual angelic army, and he would come and he would sweep away all of Israel's enemies. The day of the Lord would come, everybody would be judged, and then you would have Israel as God's people at the top of the heap, and then everybody else coming in around them, and then Israel's God would be everybody's God. This was this idea of the Messiah, which was floating around at the time of Jesus. And we even see this anticipation in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Israel would be up at the top, and all the nations would serve Israel's God. And this was at a fever pitch at Jesus' time, right? So Jesus, when you go back and you read in history, he's not the only one running around at the time claiming to be the Messiah. There were other, I'm using air quotes here for the podcast listeners, there were other Messiahs running around the desert at the time of Jesus. And like what happened with Jesus, most of these Messiahs, were killed by the Romans because what happens is they were like, I'm the Messiah. Let's get everybody together. We're going to sweep away all of God's enemies. And the Romans would come in with their forces and be like, no, that's not going to happen and, and killed them all. But some, we see with Jesus something a little bit different. His death doesn't squash the movement because we know the end of the story. So then we know then that Jesus is that promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. So what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? When we call Jesus Lord, we're affirming a couple of different things at the same time. The word Lord in the Greek is kyrios. So if you look in the hymnal, when we sing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, after confession, it's the kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. When we call Jesus Lord, we are identifying Jesus with the God of the Old Testament, with Yahweh. So when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they translated the divine name of Yahweh or as, as Lord, which is why when you read your English Bibles and you go back and you read the Old Testament, have you ever seen the word Lord capitalized? Like capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's because they're translating the divine name. Deuteronomy 6.4 is a perfect example. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is called the Shema, and it was a very ancient confession for the people of Israel. And St. Paul affirms the Shema through Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 8.6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So St. Paul links Yahweh in the Old Testament with Jesus. So to call Jesus Lord is to affirm him as God. And so this means that those who confess Jesus as Lord are also his covenant people. And we see this in John 28, when Jesus appears to Thomas. What does Thomas say? He doesn't say, my Lord and my teacher, right? or my Lord and my really good friend, or my Lord and my buddy. He says, when confronted with the risen Christ and the wounds in his hands and his side, everywhere, he says, my Lord and my what? God my Lord and my God. 
When we call Jesus Lord, the other thing we see here is we are confessing that our primary allegiance is to him. This means that Christ is above all earthly powers. It means that Jesus as our Lord is the one whom we love and serve above all others. In the ancient world, the Romans used to say, Caesar is Lord. And the Caesars were worshipped as gods. Now think about this. Along comes an upstart group of Jews saying that a crucified peasant from Palestine was raised from the dead and is actually the real Lord of the world. So you have the massive Roman army with all of its military might and its culture and its art and all of those areas of conquered run by the Lord, right, in Rome. You have a group of people from a backwater part of the Roman Empire saying, actually, this guy who was a carpenter who was really poor, you killed him in collusion with the religious leaders. He's actually the true Lord, not only of the empire, but of the entire world. If you were a Roman citizen, you'd be like, you're crazy. And we forget these things when we read scripture and, 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 and what's going on in the Bible. There's so much going on here. Is They're saying, essentially, in the words of the Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright, he says, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. And so this had real ramifications for them, saying Jesus is Lord, from economic to physical persecutions. A theologian named Michael Bird says, Nero doesn't have Christians thrown into the lions to be eaten because they got up and said, Jesus is the Lord of my heart. No, he's Lord of all. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means then for us, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is Lord over the Roman Empire, that Jesus is Lord over every empire, over every institution, over every military, political, social institution, that means Jesus is Lord over it all. That means as Christians, our primary allegiance is not to a flag, it's not to a country, it's not to the left, it's not to the right, it's not to any particular political party. Our first allegiance is to Jesus Christ himself. That is our first allegiance. And then every other allegiance that we have under that is second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. He is the primary allegiance of our lives. The one to whom we serve. And this had real world ramifications. In some places in the Roman Empire, if you do not affirm that Caesar was Lord, you could not buy or sell or trade. So if a Christian wanted to buy something, they would not affirm that Caesar is Lord. And it's not like they could say, I'll just say it because I don't really believe it. I'll just say it. I don't really believe it so I can still buy and sell. No, they would say, no, Caesar is not Lord Jesus is. And they wouldn't be able to have some economic prosperity there. Right? So that doesn't just end for them. That's still the same for us. It's a lot harder for us sometimes because we're so far removed from that culture. And sometimes we find our identity in movements or in programs or in whatever. But our primary allegiance is to Christ. And Jesus being Lord of all, it says every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That means every person from every religion, from every part of the world, every single one of us will bow our knees ultimately to Jesus Christ. Even those who did not believe in him, they will still bow their knee, whether now or at the end. 
that this doesn't sound good in our, our pluralist society, but that means that Jesus is Lord over the entire cosmos. He is Lord over every person, every religion, everything. And one day he will return and judge everyone. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's at the end of the creed. So this means that we order our lives around him, around his commandments, around his teaching, and around his gospel. Ben Meyer says, we, uh, To confess Jesus as Lord is to set him above all other loyalties. It is to make a universal claim. And the reason why we're talking about this today, brothers and sisters, is because not so we can just say this is a whole bunch of stuff that I know. When we heard in the reading today, Paul says, I wish that you wouldn't be tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He's calling all of the Christians to maturity. And the only way we are to mature, the only way we can mature as Christians is by, he says, being built up in love. And that body is the church, the body of Christ being joined together, built up together as we affirm him as our Lord, not just of our hearts, not just of a pleasant feeling. Yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, but it doesn't have any real world consequences for me. Fortunately, I know none of you are like that. You all live your faith every single day perfectly. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Teach me, please. Teach me how to do it because I'm, uh, I'm still learning. And that's okay. That's part of why we're here is as a church, as a congregation, we are affirming that, that Jesus is the one to whom we owe our allegiance to. He is the one that we shape all of our lives around. And just as Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we see the Father through Jesus' act of love, most specifically in the cross. We also see Jesus' act of love through the love that he showed by going to the sick by going to the poor, by going to those outside the margins of society who are considered to be outsiders. We don't go talk to them. We don't help them because if we do, we'll get contaminated. Jesus breaks those taboos. And so he calls us, brothers and sisters as well, to do the same thing. And so to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, our Lord, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. Ask everyone that you would please stand up together. Now that we've heard the word of God, let us affirm our faith by confessing together the Apostles' Creed today. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. You know, our church has deep roots here in the community, and we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're looking for a church that is biblically faithful and traditionally grounded, come visit us may just be the church for you. You can find us online, Zion's Stone, you
UCC.com. You can find us on Facebook as well, Zion the Stone UCC. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. May God bless you, and we hope to have you visit us in the next